Good morning, everyone. Please do keep your Bibles open at Galatians 2, although uh, also those words will be on the screen uh, as we go through. Year 6 to 8, heading out to uh, their Bible teaching time with James and Beck. Wonderful. And I'll uh, lead us briefly in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your uh, word to us uh, this morning in Galatians. I pray that uh, as we hear things uh, that are both comforting uh, and hear things that are challenging, uh, that uh, you give us open hearts and minds, that we would uh, delight to receive uh, your word, delight to receive your encouragement, delight to receive your correction, uh, so that we might bring more glory and honour to our Lord and Saviour Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I begin this morning by reading you a fake article from a fake Christian newspaper, which I've just decided to call the Socks and Sandals Times, because I can. Here's the article. A little Jewish uh, praise word has caused a lot of controversy as a Sydney church divided over the proper spelling of hallelujah has split up and has reformed as separate congregations. The problem arose when the Board of Elders at Full Gospel Temple budgeted money for a praise banner to hang from the sanctuary ceiling bearing the word hallelujah or alleluia. One faction insisted the word was to be spelled the first way while the other wouldn't budge from the second way. Petitions were drawn up, rallies held, late night threats received by both sides. One man, an alleluia supporter, was nearly clobbered by a rock that came through his window. The rock bore a note that simply said, hallelujah. (laughs) Both sides are adamant that since they had grown up with a particular spelling, that theirs was the correct way. It makes a tremendous difference when you open your eyes and see it there on the banner spelled wrong, said a hallelujah supporter. It's so jarring to see it without the H at the beginning. Nobody spells it that way anymore. I was so sick I couldn't even sleep, said Evelyn Hanley, 57, an equally ardent hallelujah supporter who carried a sign during a recent day of picketing. It's not something where I question their salvation, but at times you have to wonder, she said. The two churches now meet in separate school auditoriums and each has fashioned a banner to suit their own preference. Now, as is often the case, a humorous article like this works precisely because it sits ever so closely to the not-so-humorous truth that within Christendom there have been all sorts of divisions that have happened for seemingly stupid and trivial reasons all throughout the history of the church. Yet the notion of Christian unity is found in the Bible quite strongly. Uh, Jesus himself prays, for instance, in John chapter 17, that all his followers might be one so that the world would know that God sent Jesus to be its saviour and Lord. Uh, There's an organisation called the World Council of Churches, or WCC, that began in 1948, and it considered itself a strong proponent of what's called the ecumenical movement, the idea that if all the different denominations could somehow show a visible unity, then we'd be doing what God wants and we'd have a better witness to the world. But that's a pretty big goal when you consider that even in the New Testament... There were already disagreements among Christians, both trivial and serious. Nowhere in church history, at any time or place, is there a a time or place you can point to a church and say, "Well, well, that's when the church was completely unified. It just doesn't exist. 
In our day, in our culture, one of our big problems actually is that we appeal to Christian unity so as to uh, sort of provide an excuse to never say anything critical about the beliefs and practices of other people or other groups. Though ironically, it can actually end up being more divisive to say nothing than than to speak up. The big question I want us to consider this morning is this. What is biblical Christian unity? What are Christians supposed to be united in and for? Is such unity achievable? Does such unity exist? Now, that's not just a question I ask because it's what I feel like speaking about, uh, but because both in today's passage from Galatians and also next week, uh, much of what he said will directly impact and shape our understanding of biblical Christian unity. Now, in case you're new or visiting, uh, to bring you up to speed, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, he's midway through a personal testimony that serves to explain to the churches in Galatia uh, why it must be the case that the message he preached to them was, in fact, the original, untainted, uncorrupted version. He had received that message Uh, directly, personally, from Jesus. The message he received from Jesus is called the gospel. And it's a message from God that has the power to save people from the judgment of God, and that is from hell. And as a matter of fact, it is the only message that has the power to save people from the judgment of God. Uh, Adding to the gospel message then, or subtracting from it, or messing with it in some way, is deadly serious. And so last week, Paul began explaining how he had had no significant contact with the other people who had also received the gospel personally from Jesus, such that if he were to meet up with those people after, say, a very long time, and they compared the messages that each of them had and was teaching in their respective areas, and if those messages were exactly the same, well, that would be a touchdown proof that what Paul had been teaching was most certainly and verifiably the message that Jesus himself had intended for the church. Just like sometimes, occasionally, People wear clothes that clearly come from the same shop or the same company. And would you believe that is precisely what we see happening in our uh, passage for today? Uh, Begins, verse 1, Paul says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus uh, along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders... I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running or had not uh, been running my race in vain. Now, Jerusalem, that's the, the, the place where the original head apostles were hanging around. And Paul went to them, along with two of his mates, Barnabas and Titus, to present the message he had been teaching If the message he presented to them was exactly the same as the message they had been uh, teaching, well, then Paul's gospel would be 100% vindicated. 
And that would mean that these Galatians, who had actually been listening to teachers who taught something in addition to the gospel, well, they would have to stop listening to that, that kind of teaching. Uh, and it was the same, by the way. It actually happened, right? They got the same message. But there's also something else going on here. It's something a bit deeper. It's something that we need our Old Testament glasses on to understand properly. And so I'm going to, I'm going to have a crack at explaining it as simply as I can. A very significant event in the history of the Bible is uh, when uh, many Jews were conquered and captured by foreign nations, such as the, uh, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and were carried off very far away from their homeland in Israel. Now, that happens a lot in biblical history. You read a lot of that in the Old Testament. Now, that mattered a great deal because God, the creator of heaven and earth, who had chosen this people for himself, his reputation was on the line. If God couldn't protect even his own people, why would anyone from the other nations want to worship him as their God? For a long time, it looked like all hope was lost, that God's people Israel would never be brought back from the distant lands that they had been taken captive, that they'd been scattered to. And in Isaiah chapter 49, which will, or which already is on the screen, we, we get a sense of this problem. We read of this faithful Israelite servant who was trying to get all the captured Israelites to, sort of, to say to them, look, stop rebelling against God. You'll be able to come back. That'll be really good. And, and if you come back, well, that'll be for God's glory and honour. And then maybe other people will come to know our God. And, and, and you get a sense of the problem as I'll read these words to us. Isaiah 49 where he says, Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me from my mother's womb. He has spoken my name. He has made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hands, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. All right, so this guy's calling to all the other Jews and all the other nations. Come on, man, my job's to call you guys. You see the splendor of God. Repent of your sin, come back. But then verse 4, but I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. Whoever this servant is who's speaking, his job was to address captive Israelites and get them to return to God so that God's splendor could be displayed, presumably, to the rest of the world. But Israel seems so far gone that he complains, I'm laboring in vain. Thankfully, this servant, whoever he was, was assured that his labor would not ultimately be in vain because God himself would do the work both of restoring Israel and therefore bringing in people from the, all, all the other nations. And that's what we read next, verse 5 in, the, in Isaiah 49. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord my God has been my strength, he says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles 
that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So God's sort of saying to this servant figure, he's saying, don't worry, mate, it's all okay. I will use you to get those Israelites back and also to bring in people from all the other nations when that, when that happens. That's your purpose. That's the reason I formed you in the womb. Now, there's our history lesson. When we come back to where we are in Galatians, we notice in chapter 1, Paul identified himself, and the words will be on the screen, just like the servant in Isaiah 49. Paul said, I was set apart from my mother's womb to do the work he was doing. And it is now this same Paul who's worried that he might have laboured in vain. So we can see there again, like the the servant in Isaiah 49. Uh, In other words, here's what I think is going on. As Paul is going about teaching the gospel to Gentiles and bringing them in, he's started to get a little bit worried that Israel itself might not be coming in. They might not be uh, uh, upholding their end sort sort of thing. Maybe the Jerusalem apostles were turning away from the true message that Jesus gave uh, and were insisting that not only did people have to repent and believe, but they also had to do the additional thing of embracing the practice of circumcision and submitting to the law of Moses. If that was the case, Paul would have been running his race in vain. If he was out teaching the truth, but they had been corrupted... That would be a shocker. But in verse uh, 2, as you can see on the screen here, uh, uh, go back one, sorry. Paul's not just comparing notes with the original apostles then. I think he's actually testing the original apostles. I think he's testing them to make sure that they had kept the original gospel message. It's not just comparing notes. It is that, but it's more than that. He wants to make sure they haven't been corrupted so that his work is not in vain. Thankfully, they had not been corrupted. Verse 3, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This is an easy one to explain. We're starting to see now why Paul brought Titus along with him when he met up with the Jerusalem apostles. That was actually part of the test to make sure that they had kept the truth. Um, A good illustration of this, you've heard of the the Ku Klux Klan, right? That is a racist hate group in the the United States, a a white supremacist, right? A group of people that think that white people are politically and and, and biologically smarter and better than people from other races. So they're like racist against anyone of colour, racist against... They're anti-Semitic, right? Anti-Jew. Imagine you've got a guy who's in the Ku Klux Klan, right? And he repents, as he should, and says, you know what? That's stupid. I'm not going to be a racist anymore. People from all nations, tribes, languages, they're all the one humanity, they're all created in the image of God. Anti-Semitism stinks. Being nasty to black people is is totally off the the cards, right? I've I've repented, I've reformed, I'm now a non-racist. Well, that would be wonderful. 
Praise the Lord. I hope they all do that, right? But how would you know for sure? Well, here's how you know. You get his daughter and you hook her up with a wonderful, tall, dark-skinned, handsome fellow. (laughs) And you put a ring on her finger and bring Mr. Tall, quite dark and handsome, to their house. And she says, Dad, I'm, I'm engaged to Mr. Tall, dark and handsome here. Then you will know whether or not he has truly repented of his racism. Paul's doing the same thing. He goes to these Jerusalem apostles. He brings along a Greek, a non-Jew, Titus. He's a Greek. Just to see whether or not they're going to say to him, oh, no, you've got to get circumcised if you're really a Christian. But he's not compelled. The gospel that these Jerusalem apostles teach is exactly the same as what Paul has. It's faith in Jesus alone, not faith plus you must do these other things. Be circumcised, keep the law of Moses. Titus was not compelled to be circumcised in the presence of the Jerusalem apostles. You can be absolutely sure then that Jerusalem apostles were holding exclusively to the gospel of grace alone. Verse 6 confirms it anyway. As for those who were held in high esteem, that is the Jerusalem apostles, whatever they were, makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. God's rescuing people from the judgment we deserve is 100% his activity. We contribute nothing. No amount of good things we do uh, make us fit for being with God in heaven. Jesus has done all the work. Our salvation from start to finish is completely free. It's a 100% free gift of God. That is what grace means, a 100% free gift that God has given. And through the meeting with uh, Paul and the other apostles, we see that the gospel of grace has been confirmed. That's what the message was that Jesus delivered. As a matter of fact, the only difference between Paul and the other apostles was that his audience included Gentiles. That is, people who are not Jews. So verse 7, which hopefully, yep. On the contrary, they recognised that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been uh, to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. The only difference we got is our audience, our target groups. Like we saw in that Isaiah passage, It's ultimately God who, of course, is doing the work of bringing in both Jews and Gentiles into a saving relationship with him. And because they recognise that, they decide to make it official. That's what the Jerusalem Council is really good at doing. They make things official. Verse 9, James, Kephas and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognised the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. The right hand of fellowship means we're we're on board with each other, totally. We've got the same message, which is that trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour means you are 100% saved from the judgment of God and declared righteous in his sight. It's not faith in Jesus plus your church attendance that means you are justified. It's not faith in Jesus plus doing good things that means you get to go to heaven it is not faith in jesus plus having some sort of ceremony a full immersion baptism or whatever it is that makes you on good terms with god it is faith in jesus 
alone. He has done absolutely everything necessary to save sinners. Now, the only thing the Jerusalem apostles ask Paul, uh, that they, they ask of him, is to keep helping the Jewish church in Jerusalem. As he was out giving Gentiles uh, spiritual benefits that came really from the Jews, because salvation's originally from them, well, it was especially appropriate that those Gentiles should support their Jewish brothers materially. That's what's being said in verse 10. All they ask, says Paul, is that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. Now, the poor in this context does not mean those who are in poverty, Though, of course, elsewhere in the Bible, Christians are instructed to take care of the poor. But it's the Jewish people who are genuinely part of the true Israel, those who have put their trust in Jesus and therefore are poor in spirit, and probably at this time, on account of their persecution, also poor materially. And you actually see this in some of Paul's letters. He actually goes around taking collections for the Jerusalem church. You see it at the end of Romans, for example. Now, as we consider this whole interaction between Paul and the Jerusalem apostles, we notice that Paul has expressed fellowship with people that he'd hardly ever seen. Right? Saw them once, then, uh, then after 14 years. Right? People he'd hardly ever seen. Who preached to a different audience. He with Gentiles, they to Jews. Who lived in a different place. They were in Jerusalem. He was almost everywhere but. And whose ministry therefore would have looked very different to his. They're probably dealing with people that are eating kosher food all the time. Visibly, that does not look like unity. It looks like two different people doing very different things. But what they were agreed upon, what they considered the basis of a very tight fellowship, was the gospel message that Jesus had delivered. There is one Lord and one faith that comes by one gospel. It is the gospel of grace. I think we learn from this interaction that Christians are united in the gospel that God gave. It is the gospel message that unites Christians. And as Christians are shaped in mind and in heart by the one true gospel that Jesus has given us, then we are maintaining and even increasing biblical unity. You see, in their minds, that's how it would have been. Gentiles were coming to be saved in exactly the same way as Jews. How? On the basis of the gospel. The gospel clearly is the thing that's the unifying feature. Those who compromise the gospel are those who compromise Christian unity. And sadly, there always has, and until Jesus returns, there always will be movements and organisations that compromise the gospel. Maintaining Christian unity, which we're instructed to do, not create it, but to maintain it, maintaining gospel unity involves calling people to live and act in accordance with God's revealed message. As a matter of fact, that is precisely what we're going to see next week. And it's a very, very dramatic example of it next week. 
Maintaining gospel unity involves calling people to live and act in accordance with God's revealed message. What's that going to look like in the everyday life of our church here? Well, the first and most obvious thing to say is that uh, this untainted and unchanged message of Paul and of the other apostles is that God commands us to respond by putting our trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. To respond rightly to God's message is to obey him. The gospel demands obedience, which is responding in repentance and faith. What's the basic message? What is the gospel? Oh, here's a real quick version. The basic message is this. God has created the world and created us to look after it, but we've all rebelled against God, saying that we don't want him in charge of our lives. God will not put up with such rebellion. His punishment for sin is death and judgment. Though, being a loving God, he sent Jesus into the world so that Jesus would take the death and the judgment that you and I deserve. God raised him up to be the Lord of all things. And one day he'll put a final end to all rebellion against God. But right now, all people everywhere have the opportunity to turn and trust in Jesus and be saved. The alternative is to stay as we are and to reject him and therefore to remain under his wrath. I've just preached the gospel to you. For those who respond to God's message by repenting of their sin, trusting in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, the Bible actually says they've joined the fellowship of the apostles. Don't believe me? Look at 1 John chapter 1. You join the fellowship of the apostles. Obeying the gospel message is what brings you into unity with other Christians. If you're not yet a Christian, please unify with us. Please repent. Put your trust in Jesus. Live for him as your Lord and Saviour. But the other thing I think... Uh, is a fairly clear implication for us, is just like Paul has, and we'll see him especially do next week, we need to defend the gospel. Actually, maintaining unity involves defending the truth. Now, uh, when it it comes to defending the gospel, we've got to be really clear that there is a distinction between, uh, uh, I suppose, gospel unity, matters of gospel unity, and matters of indifference, things that are trivial. Uh, For a really good example, uh, there is a a denomination or union, I suppose, of of churches uh, who think that it's not right to baptise someone until they can profess faith in Jesus. Uh, That's the Baptist denomination, right? Um, Whereas in an Anglican church, as a matter of fact, in about a month from now, I'm going to be baptising Isaac here, who's, you know, barely, he's not even two years old yet, right? So we're obviously okay to baptise infants. Now, we are thoroughly in agreement about the gospel. And so that places this practice of baptism as very much a distant secondary kind of issue. I think we have gospel unity, uh, at least in our sort of diocese of between Anglicans and Baptists. And frankly, whilst I personally am am okay with infant baptism, and if you want to talk to me about it, I'll tell you why I think it's all right and good, I couldn't care less if that's not your view. It really doesn't matter. It may matter if you think that infant baptism is something you, you, you can't abide with, 
so that you might be in a different church of a different denomination. But it's at that point that denominational difference is, it's almost a blessing in disguise. It's actually a form of gospel unity. It says, well, we can't do church together, so we'll have our different uh, 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 church meetings, but we're actually united in the gospel. It's not a visible unity, but that's irrelevant. It is a gospel unity that matters. Um, However, once upon a time... uh, not that long ago, actually, there's, there was a group called the Worldwide Churches of Christ. Now, I'm not talking about the Church of Christ down the road, Church of Christ, right? Not that. They're a different thing, right? It just happens to sound similar. Worldwide Churches of Christ, uh, who taught that you must be baptised within their church community and believe the gospel of Jesus in order to be saved. Believe the gospel and be baptised with their church. That's a gospel issue. That's a difference and to actually support gospel unity, you need, we need to speak out against that and say, no, I will not fellowship uh, there because that's, that's a denial of the truth. Speaking of uh, 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 issues that actually are, uh, I suppose, uh, things that affect gospel unity, a really good way of, uh, I guess, working out whether something's worth fighting for or not, you ask yourself the question, is it a gospel plus problem? Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, if you've got the gospel message, Jesus died to pay for all your sins. Uh, oh, next slide, please. There we go. If it's a gospel plus, plus problem, Jesus died to pay for all our sins. He's uh, rose, risen to be our Lord. We've repented. We've put our faith in him. We're saved. But is there a plus? You must also do X, Y, Z. You must also be baptised. You must also take part in a religious ceremony. The Roman Catholic Mass, for example, you must take part in this. You must uh, confess sins in order to be in heaven, right? Gospel plus, as a general rule of thumb, bad. It's a little thing you can helpfully remember. Is it the gospel plus? Uh, Often people say they believe the gospel, but it's important that we ask, well, what do you believe in addition that makes you right with God? If there's anything there... That's a problem. Although I want to say more about uh, the other issue, which is the gospel minus problem. You can have the gospel minus something, say that you know Jesus is fully God. Well, if Jesus is not fully God, you can't be saved. That's a gospel minus. Uh, you can have the gospel minus judgment. Jesus didn't die to save us from the judgment of God. He died to show a good example that we should follow. No, that's a gospel minus. That's a problem. But I've come to to see recently, uh, I think, a new form of of problem that I think fits in the gospel minus category. It's when the gospel is never clearly articulated so that you don't know what's actually going on. You see, you can't have unity unless you've got a clear gospel. If the gospel is never articulated... Well, how can you be sure you've got unity? Now, I've worked out a way this this happens a lot lately. When I drive the kids to school in the morning, I go up Oran Park Drive and I see, next slide please, this picture, which I think a lot of you have seen if you've driven up there. It's just an advertisement for Harrington Grove, right? The housing estate there. It's got one word on it, forever. With some pretty green stuff. Very clever kind of advertising. Because the idea is you see just the one completely ambiguous and almost contextless sign, but it makes you feel good because you 
bring to it something positive because it looks nice. And forever, in the grand scheme of eternity, my problems seem insignificant. So I feel good as I see this sign and I'm supposed to associate that with living, living in Harrington Grove, right? See, I import my ideas when there's ambiguity. I've come to notice recently there's a lot of Christian teaching, books, sermons, stuff that's around that is, I think, deliberately ambiguous so that you might import something good. If you hear some teaching that says, I really want your experience, bring your experience and what you're thinking into something and, and, and see if that makes you feel sort of really good in it. It's very spiritual. Ambiguity, I think, is actually, is actually a way of... Uh, uh, dissing Christian unity because you've got to be united in the gospel. You've got to be clear on what the gospel is. If you're not clear about something, you can't know. And if your teaching methods always rely on ambiguity where you import something, that's cause for alarm. Just be careful if you come across things uh, like that. Anyway, I've um, been up here for a long time. If you've got any questions or comments, please write them in the cards. I'll lead us briefly in prayer and uh, I'll hand back over to Bertie. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much um, for your word uh, written by your servant Paul uh, to help the Galatian churches and therefore to help us. Father, we thank you for the untainted, unperverted gospel message that Paul received from Jesus that was written down in the scriptures that has been verified, that has been confirmed, uh, not only historically and logically, but also, of course, through the witness of your Holy Spirit. Father, please, uh, like the Apostle Paul, help us uh, to stand against anything uh, that would add to or subtract from the gospel. Please help us to be bold and not simply for the sake of politeness want to not speak up about gospel differences. But please also, Father, give us great discernment to recognise when differences are trivial that don't require any uh, uh, compromising on fellowship and unity. Father, we thank you that you have given us salvation by grace 100%. In our lives where we're tempted to think that we can add to our merit by doing anything good or partaking in anything religious, please correct us, Father. Uh, Please help us to, to stay on the straight and narrow path in that regard, trusting only and exclusively in the person and work of Jesus Christ to make us justified before you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.